This is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for Radio and now in its 25th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. A new company with a fascinating background is about to enter the American car market with a couple of electric vehicles. We'll tell you all about it. And the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety has identified a piece of equipment that can decrease collisions by up to 20%. We'll throw some light on that life-saving tech coming up. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at MercuryInsurance.com. Well, hi, I'm Jack Red. With me is co-host Chris Teague. Of course, we do America on the Road each week cross-country. He's located on one end of the country. I'm located across the country in another. And we are traveling extensively, driving and evaluating new cars, something we enjoy doing. And uh, Chris, I should uh, welcome you. I haven't heard your voice yet on the show, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear from you. Well, thank you for welcoming me, Jack. I hope things are going well on your side of the world, and I'm having an exciting day here doing a little bit of uh, car shopping, so uh, I'll save what I'm buying for later on, but uh, always love spending money. Oh, cool. Car shopping. Well, very good. Uh, you're not alone, but uh, people are finding it difficult to, to get cars, that's for certain. Uh, this week, we have a great guest for everyone. Our special guest is Ben Househalter. He is the product planner on the all-new 2022 Toyota Corolla Cross. That's probably a new nameplate to most people. He'll give us all the details on what we expect to be a very popular Toyota model. And, of course, we're going to road test some vehicles. And uh, what is your road test vehicle this time around, Chris? I'm going to try to fit this into the segment. It's a really long name. It's the 2022 Mini Cooper John Cooper Works Convertible. Wow, you were styling, and I think probably a good time. I can imagine driving around Maine, the beautiful fall colors out there, and you've got the top down in this convertible, nice little crisp fall weather. It sounds spectacular. I'd really enjoy that. (laughs) If you want to stick out like a sore thumb in Maine, drive a red mini convertible around in fall. That's a great way to do it. Yeah, well, maybe I do, maybe I don't. But I will be taking a look at the Ford Bronco two-door, That is not to be confused with the Ford Bronco four-door. A major difference, the two-door has, well, two doors. Uh, So that's coming up. Uh, Of course, we'll have the latest in in automotive news for you from around the globe and uh, across the universe. We do that for you each week on America on the Road. So stay with us for that. Interesting stories coming up. And uh, with Chris Teague, this is Jack Nerad with you. We're so glad you're with us right here on America on the Road. Thanks so much for being with us, and stick with us for the next segment. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris T. Jackie Red back with you. And it is automotive news time right here on America on the Road. And we've got some really, I think it's fascinating news for you. It's beyond interesting. I think it's fascinating. Because there is news that a Vietnamese automaker, yes, Vietnamese automaker called VinFast, will start taking orders in the U.S. market for two SUVs. Um, they are named quite catchily. Is there such a word as catchily? I'm not sure. But they are named VFE35 and VFE36. I wonder how they came up with those names. Uh, 
They are electric SUVs. They're uh, supposedly going to be delivered. I'm, I'm certain I make that sound like there's some question about it. I think it's pretty likely they will be delivered in the first half of next year. At least so says their global chief executive, a guy named uh, Michael Loescheller, uh, a former executive at Volkswagen. And he was also at Opel. So, and he's got a nice German name. They are not making sales projections yet, but uh, these uh, models will be introduced at the Los Angeles Auto Show, which is coming up in about a month from now. I will be there to report on that. So uh, we'll have a quick report on VinFast, and uh, they're part of the Vin Group. This is what is fascinating to me. This company, Vin Group, was founded as an instant noodle business. Yes, you hear that right. Instant noodles. I love instant noodles, by the way. I think they're terrific. Uh, in the Ukraine, and now is a conglomerate. Uh, they have real estate, uh, holdings, resorts, schools, hospitals. They make smartphones, and now they're going to make electric vehicles and sell them in the United States. The assembly plant is in Vietnam. They're considering an American production facility. Uh, of course, it's easy to say. And their global target is 15,000 vehicles. Uh, they had a higher target earlier, but the global chip shortage that you keep hearing about here on America on the Road has limited that. Uh, Chris, I, I love your reaction to a, a noodle company now getting into electric vehicles. What, what's your take on that? Well, I assume that they're not made out of noodles. Obviously, that's kind of silly. But, you know, I think and I've said this a million times on the show. More choice is almost always a better thing for buyers. I think that if we're going to reach a point where uh, everyone is adopting and driving an electric vehicle, we need as many choices as possible in as many different price segments as possible. So uh, we can't all drive Porsches and we can't all drive uh, Tesla Model S's. And, you know, not everybody likes the Ford Mustang Mach-E. So it's always great to have uh, more uh, as opposed to fewer options on the market. One thing I will say, and it's interesting that you bring up the noodle uh, connection there, is that one thing with these companies that are so huge and they operate in so many different areas is that uh, I think there can be some risk to some of their businesses if one area of the business fails or if uh, there's some government intervention in another area. You know, we see that sometimes with other companies uh, globally. So uh, it'll be up to fate, I guess, what happens with the company, but if they actually deliver a vehicle. But again, if they do, more choice is always better from my, from my perspective. Yeah, I really look forward to driving this company. I wish them well, and uh, I look forward to seeing these vehicles at the upcoming Los Angeles Auto Show, which is uh, very likely to take place, although people keep asking me, is there going to be an LA Auto Show? And uh, I'm in close contact with those those folks, uh, and um, it seems like there absolutely will be. So that's coming up, and that should be fascinating. Of course, the North American Car of the Year jury will announce its finalists at that show. So I will be part of that since I'm the vice president of that organization. So that's coming up. Also, uh, Vietnam is a, a very low-cost area to build things, to manufacture things. So uh, there's the hope that these vehicles will be uh, very nicely priced and uh, allow many people to get into electric vehicles that might not otherwise do that. And here's another uh, item that uh, we I teased this uh, in the in the opening of the show, and it is uh, based on a study from the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. And the the piece of uh, equipment that is so life saving is a very common piece of equipment. Actually, it's your headlights. And they have noted that uh, if you have good headlights. 
and IIHS is very um, adamant about this, they're very strong on headlight performance, uh, that vehicle accidents go down nearly 20% if the uh, headlights have a good rating versus those with poor headlights. What's your take on headlights and their importance, Chris? <laughs> well, they're obviously very important, and, and you do mention it. It's kind of funny if you read safety ratings as much as I and probably you do as well. You, you know, you scroll down the list of ratings for a vehicle, you see good, 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 and then you get to the headlights, and for a shocking number of vehicles, they're either they're moderate or poor, uh, even when everything else in the vehicle works perfectly. Uh, but they rate them based on the distance that their low and high beams can illuminate the road, uh, both straight and curved roads ahead of the vehicle. Uh, they get extra points if they have high beam assist. Uh, they lose points if they're too bright or if they cause glare. So, you know, I think I'm the curmudgeon old man. I know, Jack, you're a few years older than me. I always think headlights are getting too bright these days, and I always complain about it. But uh, they do save lives, and this IIHS uh report proves it. Right. And it, it is interesting to me that IIHS, which is the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, which is a organization funded by the insurance industry, has always pushed a headlight performance. And it doesn't strike me that we see that from NHTSA or we see that from the individual car companies so much, but this is something that uh, has been um, on IIHS's mind for a long time now. And according to their senior research engineer, a guy named Matthew Brumbelow, uh, driving at night is three times as risky as driving during the day. And I, I can believe that because you're Vision is just impaired versus uh, what you can see in daylight. And, and I think it's important that uh, you see out there. I mean, that's your first line of defense, right, Chris? Yeah, I agree. You know, we talked just uh, a little while ago about hitting deer and, and moose and things like that. Around here, anywhere where there's a wooded area or not a, an urban spot where there are streetlights, uh, you really do come to realize how important headlights are, especially, uh, like I said, in rural areas where there aren't a lot of other light supplies. So I agree with their their statement that these are life-saving uh you know, pieces of equipment. Uh, but again, I do think it is, uh, I think their criteria is extremely stringent. So I'd love to be able to uh, to figure out what exactly they're doing when they test these cars. I would love to, to see that. Maybe I'll reach out and, and get a statement for the show next time. Yeah, I think that would be interesting to, to learn exactly uh, how they do that. Maybe we do an interview with a, a spokesperson from IIHS. Uh, I think that would be uh, quite interesting as well. So that's coming up. Well, here's something that has been, I would say, in some ways plaguing. Maybe that's a not a fair term, but uh, maybe it is. A lot of urban areas, including urban areas here in Southern California, where I reside most of the time, and that is these uh, electric scooters uh, seem to be everywhere. And I guess the uh, the high tide of those was right before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And since then, uh, it's been pretty tough times for them. Of course, not as many people are commuting. And a lot of people, oddly, <laughs> were commuting by electric scooter uh, here in, in urban areas like downtown Los Angeles or Long Beach, um, Santa Monica, those areas. But um, harder times now. This according to a report uh, from Reuters. And uh, part of the problem is I think people just got kind of tired of, you know, the scooter litter. I, do you see any of that in, uh, in your hometown or uh, in Maine? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, probably due to the fact that, you know, seven or eight months out of the year, uh, they're not really all that comfortable to ride. Uh, but I can see and I have been to Southern California and other areas where this has been a problem. You just see piles of scooters at 
different businesses or at street corners and things like that. So uh, I could see how starting a business that causes so many people so much annoyance could end up being a little bit precarious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they there's a term for it now. They call it scooter blight. And it's because when people are done with the scooter for the day, it's not like they own the scooter. They just kind of leave it out on, on the sidewalk there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, a lot of cities have at least temporarily banned them. Uh, um, among them, cities as diverse as Copenhagen, Denmark, and Columbia, Missouri, uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, although some of those, uh, like Columbia, Missouri, and Winston-Salem, after banning them, have allowed them to return, I think, with, with more restrictions. And I think that's what we're going to see going forward, if this indeed is an industry that has a future. Yeah, I agree. You know, those uh, Winston-Salem and Columbia, Missouri are both college towns, too. So I think that those are good sort of use cases for it. Uh, surprising to see that, that cities in Europe are banning them. But again, uh, it's hard to start a business when so many people are annoyed by the byproducts that come from it. Yeah, absolutely true. And uh, we'll see where that goes. And when we come back, we will find out about uh, two fascinating vehicles, including a Mini Cooper convertible driven by our very own Chris Teague. And I was driving the Ford Bronco two-door. So stay with us for that. Thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Chris T. Jack D. Red with you for Road Test Time on America on the Road, one of our favorite segments, Chris Teague's favorite segment. I, I got to believe it's my favorite segment, too, but uh, of course I like them all. The good thing about road tests is we get to tell you about vehicles we've driven over the course of the past week or so. And Chris, you were styling, uh, driving through Maine in that um, Mini Cooper convertible uh, Tell us all about it. Yeah, I was styling and everyone, it, you know, we talk about traffic stopping cars. I had that with the Genesis uh, G70 and some others. And this is definitely one of those, it, not the not least of which because I have out-of-state plates, but the bright red paint and the Union Jack on the convertible top uh, are definitely eye-catching. But this is the 2022 John Cooper Works Mini Convertible. So this is like the sort of sporty hot model in the lineup, uh, the cars generally come with a turbocharged three-cylinder or a larger four-cylinder. This also has a four-cylinder, but uh, it has been pushed up to 228 horsepower and 236 pound-feet of torque. Uh, the car starts around 39 grand. Uh, my test car had the iconic package or the iconic trim, which adds right around 6,000 to the the price tag and comes with like Apple CarPlay head-up display. Uh, and a few other things that push the price up to $46,250. Uh, and I'll come back to that a little bit later on because I think it's a little bit stout for such a car uh, a car like this. Uh, but one of the things I love, and I want to get your take on this, Jack, we talk about this sometimes with Jeeps and other vehicles that have sort of an iconic or very strong history. Uh, the Mini Cooper has a ton of Easter eggs that I actually appreciate. I love looking through and finding these things like uh, the Union Jack printed into the taillights and the Union Jack that's uh, stuck up on the uh, the roof, the convertible roof, and then a few things inside. But what is your take on the on the Mini brand in general? Uh, I haven't heard you talk about one in a while, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Well, I have really warm feelings about the Mini brand. I went on a Mini rally around Ireland uh, a long time ago. I think uh, it's probably more than 20 years ago, actually. Uh, and just had a blast with all the Mini folks. And it was when they were introducing Mini again. And this was a combination of uh, classic Minis from the 60s 
and then the current minis uh, that were at least current uh, circa 2000 or so. And it was just such a wonderful time. And I, I love this, uh, you know, kind of the retro feel of mini. When you look at a, a genuine mini from the 1960s, you realize how much larger uh, the current Mini is than the previous Mini and how different it is. But at the same time, they captured some of that aura, and, and I think that's cool. Yeah, I agree. And, and to your point, they are a lot larger than they used to be, but they are still very small cars uh, by today's standards, by almost anyone's standards, uh, regardless of who you ask. Uh, this car is a two-door. They do make a four-door, larger versions of this car. They also make a hard top. Uh, you can have your Mini the way you like it, uh, different colors, different options, uh, different uh, graphics and things. But uh, as I said, two-door convertible. Inside, uh, the front seats. So this car really is or should be considered a two-seater car. So it has a back seat. Um, in all efforts, it's not going to be that great to fit kids back there. Adults are not really going to want to ride back there. Uh, you could probably throw a dog back, not throw. You could place gently a dog back there. Uh, but there really isn't any leg room in the back seat for, for really anyone. Uh, the front seats are very well bolstered. They're comfortable. Uh, they have a little bit of leather in this trim with Alcantara in the middle. So it's very grippy. Alcantara is like a suede material. There's, uh, the back seat, like I said, is very tight. The leg room. So my five-year-old daughter now who is in a booster seat instead of her full-size car seat, uh, I'm not going to use this car, didn't use this car as a, a kid hauler. I think that would be a little bit silly to expect it to do that. But I did take my kids in the car. Uh, so my, my five-year-old in a booster seat in the back seat um, had to prop her feet up on the front of the, or the back of the front seat rather. Uh, and then my eight-year-old daughter, instead of riding behind me, since she's quite a bit taller, had to put her car seat in the front. And we, you know, dealt with that for very short trips here and there. Uh, but if I'd had to jam her in the back, there'd be no, there would be no doing that. I think that that's something that people should realize here. Uh, but again, I don't think people are going to, most people are going to look at the Cooper uh, and look at it as a family car, especially not as the convertible. And uh, Jack, I don't know what you think about this, but at $46,000, we talked about, I just, I mentioned the price earlier. Uh, do you think that's too much for a car that can't or shouldn't be used every day by a family? Or is it like a fun car? Like, Where does the price fall on your spectrum of, of car type? Well, I think it is a fun car, and I th it depends on your life stage or, you know, just your lifestyle, I suppose. I mean, if you're a single person, no matter how old, you might just be fine with a vehicle that uh, can uh, – transport two very, very successfully and then can accept a, another two uh, now and then uh, and have all the fun of that convertible and all the performance of the John Cooper Works version, which is what shoots the price tag way up toward the $50,000 range. Uh, I think there's a lot to like about that vehicle, but it's certainly not for everybody. And it, it doesn't sound like it's for the Teague family overall, unless it would be a third or fourth car for you guys. Yeah, but again, you know, I'm not going to hold that against it because it's not a family car. But uh, just real quick, some performance numbers. So it does zero to 60 in a little bit more than six seconds, like six, two, six, three. Um, it's got a great sounding exhaust. Brembo brakes slow the car down perfectly. It's a small car, but they do their job excellently. Uh, the adaptive dampers do a great job at keeping the car planted to the road and making it feel, and I hate to use the term, like a go-kart, but it really does feel like that. However, on the flip side of that, even in their softer settings, they're extremely harsh and the convertible top lets in a lot of noise. So I think people probably expect that, and the trade-off is a welcome uh, welcome one for the, the performance that you get. But uh, treated the right way and with the right expectations, I think it would be a very fun car for the right buyer. Absolutely true. I agree with you. And I, another fun car for the right buyer, I think, is the Ford Bronco two-door. 
which uh, the Nierad family was driving this week. Uh, I had a lot of fun in this particular vehicle. It's kind of, in some ways, the forgotten Bronco, I think, because a lot of people concentrate on either the Bronco four-door, which is certainly the more practical of the two larger Broncos, or the Ford Bronco Sport, uh, another four-door that is also uh, in, in many ways more practical than the Ford Bronco two-door that I was driving. But on the other hand, uh, with the two-door, you have kind of a throwback to the old Bronco. The styling is very much like that and is uh, certainly comparable to the Jeep Wrangler two-door, uh, which is its obvious direct competitor. Uh, the Bronco in this, uh, the Bronco two-door, and the four-door for that matter, are offered in seven trim levels. We were driving the Outer Banks trim level, which is kind of the zooty and not super off-road oriented. These are still all very off-road oriented. And I would say the Bronco two-door is more off-road oriented, at least in terms of its on-road ride, than is the Bronco Sport that we reviewed uh, probably three or four weeks ago on the show. Uh, I like this vehicle a lot. Uh, Absolutely do. And there's a lot of throwback to it, although it has some modern features too. One of the modern features, of course, is it's uh, optional 2.7 liter turbocharged V6 engine. Plenty of horsepower there. It has a uh, locking differential on its uh, rear axle and it has you know, quite a, a high numerical rear axle ratio, which helps you crawl across things and that kind of thing. And the vehicle we had had the roof rail crossbars, which is kind of critical for carrying stuff because although there's plenty of room inside, you probably want to carry even more stuff, especially if you're going to do overlanding or something like that, which it strikes me, this is a perfect vehicle for. The price of the test vehicle was around $45,000. So not inconsequential, certainly, but I think uh, a good value. It's a four-passenger vehicle in this trim. The two-door is a four-passenger um, the twin bucket seats up front are amply wide. They're easy to get into. It's narrower in the rear and kind of claustrophobic in a way because yeah, there's a no, no rear door. It's funny. My wife came to me and she said, I went to put something in the back seat and found <laughs> there was no rear door. And, uh, you know, she's old enough to remember uh, two-door cars. So it's not something that's absolutely new to her. What's your take on uh, the two-door versus the four-door Bronco? You know, I think it, so you talk about the retro looks and being iconic. The two-door Bronco is the iconic model. It is the Bronco model. Uh, I think it's great that they still offer it in a world where, you know, a lot of people, you said most people look at the four-door or, or people like me shop for the four-door. Um, but for the right buyer, again, you know, it's it's everybody's capable off-road, probably even more so because of the wheelbase. Uh, and it looks great. So no faulting it there. I, I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm staggering here, but I totally agree with you that uh, it is in some ways retro. And at the same time, it's got newer than tomorrow kind of stuff like Sync 4, which is Ford's uh, newest version of Sync. It's fastest and most advanced infotainment management system. Uh, the vehicle we had had the optional 12-inch touchscreen, which is great. Uh, big time stuff. And it has Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, including wirelessly. So all of that stuff is there. And then it has an off-road, the Ford Performance app uh, has off-road navigation, which is super cool as well. So this is fully featured in terms of uh, entertainment. It is not as fully featured, the Outer Banks version is not as fully featured in terms of 
what it is able to do off-road, but I still think it's probably very, very off-road capable with, uh, as I mentioned, the locking rear differential and things like that. It has the uh, GOAT modes that go anywhere or goes over any terrain uh, modes. Uh, there were seven of them in the in the vehicle we tested. So uh, all in all, I think there's a lot of value here. I like the fact that it has kind of the looks of the old Bronco, and as you mentioned, Chris, in a way that the others don't. So um, this is a vehicle I like a lot, and I so I think we have two eye-catching vehicles that uh, are really going to uh, capture attention no matter where you go, which can be good or bad, right? <laughs> yeah, I totally agree there. So that's it for our road test for this time around. And when we come back, we will be speaking with Ben Househalter. He's the product planner on the all-new 2022 Toyota Corolla Cross. Probably a new vehicle to you. And he will tell us all about it. So stay with us for that. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Neared with you. And thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Neared back with you. And we are on location in Austin, Texas. With a special guest, Ben Hosshalter is Senior Manager of Marketing Communications with Toyota. You have introduced the Toyota Corolla Cross today. I've driven it. Excited by it. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Glad to be here. Glad to talk about Corolla Cross. Well, we're, we're talking about a very well-known name, Corolla. <laughs> Been around forever and uh, the best-selling car of all time, I think. And then we're talking about a different version of it, a different name attached to it. Let our listeners know what it's all about. Yeah, Jack, so Corolla has been around for over 60 years. We've sold over 50 million vehicles globally under the Corolla brand. And with today's changing marketplace and buyers looking for SUVs and movement out of sedans, it's the right time for us to reinvent Corolla and what it means to, to have that level of customer familiarity in a new segment. So really excited to, to make these changes and bring out a whole new story for Corolla. Well, the Corolla name gives you some hints about how big the vehicle is, but let our listeners know where it fits in the overall Toyota lineup because it's an interesting spot, I think. Yeah, so Corolla Cross, uh, it's what we call an entry-level SUV. It fits in size between the CHR that we've been selling for about the last four years and RAV4 that we've been selling for about 25 years. So in terms of dimension, it fits almost exactly in between those two products. Uh, it's based on our C platform, which is the same underpinnings that are on the Corolla sedan, the Corolla hatchback, uh, as well as Prius. So the CHR, tell me how that fits into the uh, scheme, because that was essentially your entry level, and it is smaller than the uh, Corolla Cross. How does it fit in there? Yeah, CHR was, was targeted more at very youthful urban buyers who didn't need the capability of an SUV with all-wheel drive. So CHR was a focus on nimble handling and very easy to park, but it's was kind of more expressive, right? It's kind of more highly styled, less traditional SUV, right? That's right. CHR, in fact, stands for coupe high rider. We tried to bring the styling and aggressiveness of a coupe to a more high riding vehicle, but didn't quite get the full SUV capability that some of our customers have been asking for. Yeah. So that is provided in the uh, Corolla Cross. Just give us some of the thoughts of capabilities. Yeah. So Corolla Cross, uh, it has. 8 inches of 8.1 inches of ground clearance, so a lot more than CHR, almost as much as RAV4. Uh, it has a much more upright, what we call package, which enables better rear seat space, better cargo capacity than, than CHR. In fact, in the entry SUV segment, we're one of the largest product offerings that are going to be in there. 
So we think that this product will stand out and really deliver on the SUV attributes that people are looking for. That's really, you know, they're looking for versatility. They're looking for cargo carrying ability uh, that they're not getting in a sedan or even in a hatchback, right? I mean, and that's that's what this vehicle provides. That's right. Room for all of the things you need for a day at the lake, to move your buddy out of his apartment. I mean, this is things that a Corolla hasn't ever been able to do before. Right. Tell us a bit about uh, connectivity. That's certainly an important uh, aspect uh, <laughs> to things these days, right? I mean, uh, very critical. And in fact, it's something you talk about before you talk about powertrain and suspension, right? Yeah, absolutely. Connectivity is something that, that crosses across all generations, all age buyer groups, all multicultural ethnicities are interested in connectivity. How can they bring their phone experience into the vehicle, how can their vehicle help their daily commute and make their lives a little bit easier. So on, on Corolla Cross, we have standard Apple CarPlay and Android Auto compatibility. We have Safety Connect, where if you're in an accident, it will automatically call out to the emergency services and they'll be on their way to, to help you. We have a system called Remote Connect, where you can lock and unlock your doors from your smartphone or start your vehicle from your smartphone, as well as Service Connect, where the vehicle, if it has any issues, it will contact the dealer automatically and say, hey, this vehicle needs an oil change or this vehicle needs to be looked at for something. Well, then I was fascinated with that. I think you're offering it with a 10-year trial, right? <laughs> that it strikes me, wow, that's a pretty lengthy period of time for a trial. Uh, but you want a, that buyer to be connected with the dealer, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the customer-dealer relationship is really important. We have some of the best dealers in the industry, we think. And to be able to keep them on a long-term connection with the customers in their vehicle is really important. Let's talk a bit about interior spaces. The five-passenger vehicle, uh, 60-40 uh, split rear seat, uh, a lot of pa uh, cargo space behind the rear seat. Uh, tell us all about that. And, and yeah, yeah. so 60-40 rear split seat is standard across the whole lineup. We have uh, a little bit more than, than 25 cubic feet of cargo capacity behind the rear seats with the seats up. And if you fold those rear seats down, we have over 65 cubic feet of cargo capacity. So a lot that you can fit in this product. Entry into the rear seats is really great. We have a high roof line, so you don't have to watch your head as you get into the vehicle. The high seating position of an SUV in the rear seat helps you look out, as well as a couple other creature comforts that we put in the rear seat of Corolla Cross, including standard rear air conditioning vents for rear seat passengers and available USB ports so they can charge any devices they bring with them. As yeah, well. which is important too. And uh, it strikes me uh, for a couple of young couples or even empty nester couples, <laughs> you know, or something like that, or a young family traveling on vacation, plenty of room and uh, plenty of fuel economy too. Talk a bit about that. Absolutely. So we have um, one powertrain that's going to be available, 169 horsepower, four-cylinder engine. If you get the all-wheel drive version, it's 30 miles per gallon combined. If you option for the two-wheel drive version, it increases a bit to 32 miles per gallon combined. Very competitive for the segment, uh, very thrifty, much in line with what the Corolla brand stands for. Yeah. There's some vehicles in this segment that don't offer all-wheel drive. They're front-wheel drive only. Give us your thinking about adding all-wheel drive, because it uh, probably came at some expense and complication, right? <laughs> For sure. We, we learned a lot with CHR, and, and that's one of the products that was only available with front-wheel drive. And while that product sold really well in the Sunbelt states in California and Texas and Florida, our northern regions and dealers were asking, hey, we need, we need all-wheel drive. The market up there is north of 80% in some markets. Um, so we built Corolla Cross to satisfy, satisfy those requests. And we think that the mix of all-wheel drive on Corolla Cross will be the majority of vehicles that we build, over 55%. Wow, interesting. 
interesting. You're building this in a new factory, aren't you? We are really excited to introduce a brand new product in a brand new plant. So we, we partnered with Mazda and built a, uh, a whole new company to manufacture these vehicles, Mazda Toyota Manufacturing in uh, Alabama. It's uh, brand new, over 4,000 jobs that we provide to the economy here. Uh, it is the sole production location for every Corolla Cross sold in North America. So really excited to be bringing that story as part of Corolla Cross. Right. And a large production capacity. I think something like 150,000 a year of vehicles. That's a heck of a lot of vehicles. Of course, uh, Toyota is selling something like, what, 350,000 or 400,000 RAV4s a year. Talk a bit about the relationship between Corolla Cross and RAV4. I can see that there might be some people that would opt for Corolla Cross versus RAV4. My, my daughter, by the way, is a very proud RAV4 driver and loves it. Oh, glad to hear your daughter likes her RAV4. Yeah, the, the two products we think will live together in, in relatively good harmony. RAV4 is a huge seller for us. It's the number one non-truck in the industry for the last couple of years, and we don't anticipate that to change, quite honestly. We think that Corolla Cross will be a complementary product, and most of the inflow for Corolla Cross, we don't think that it'll come from RAV4's small SUV segment, but rather continued outflow out of sedan. We yeah. think that, that, that that's where most of our sales will come from. RAV4 still offers uh, a larger package than Corolla Cross. There's more rear seat leg room and headroom in the second row, as well as more cargo capacity. So for customers who are looking for a little bit more space, a little bit more aggressive styling, RAV4 is there. But for the more budget-oriented customer, Corolla Cross will be a Yeah, a, really a lot of people option. coming from Corolla, and Corolla sedan and Corolla hatchback, I would imagine, would also consider uh, That's Corolla right. Cross. As a, as a logical choice. What do you think is uh, particularly exciting about this vehicle or uh, you know, something you can really hang your hat on from a marketing standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the right product at the right time. The SUV explosion is happening at all levels within the industry. And to get a really strong offering at the bottom is something that we're really proud of. It brings everything that customers are looking for. Great value, great quality, dependability, and reliability that have been associated with the Corolla name for, for decades, as well as technology and features that a young buyer are really looking for these days. Our standard Toyota Safety Sense suite, which has forward collision warning, pedestrian collision warning, and um, auto high beams and adaptive cruise control. I mean, all of that is technology that 10 years ago you could only get on high-end luxury cars. We're bringing that into the bottom of the lineup. Also, great spec like blind spot monitor that our customers are looking for. That will be standard on the majority of the vehicles that we sell, as well as wireless charging, something that the Gen Z and Gen Y customers are really interested in. Mm -hmm. Walk us through the trim levels. I think there's a ton of value across the trims, and even the most expensive trim level, the vehicle that I just drove uh, <laughs> this morning here in Austin, and uh, the Austin environs, the XLE, uh, is under well under $30,000. Uh, tell us a bit about it. Yeah, that's right. So we'll have three grades available, L, LE, and XLE. The L grade will start uh, just over $22,000. The core LE grade, which we think will be the majority of the vehicles that we sell, will be between twenty-four dollars and $25,000. And XLE will be very well equipped for just below $28,000. Relatively simple grade strategy that aligns closely with the Corolla grade strategy. So customers who are familiar with Corolla sedans will look at Corolla Cross and say, oh yeah, I remember I used to drive the LE, so that's where I should start looking. 
Yeah, makes sense. And all-wheel drive, uh, pretty inexpensive. Tell us a bit about uh, that and its availability across the lineup. Yeah, all-wheel drive is available on all three of those grades for a relatively affordable $1,300. We think that uh, more than half of our customers will option up to all-wheel drive just for, for better cold weather peace of mind and a little bit of a safety f effect there too. So how do you get the word out about a new model like this, a new model that uh, you expect to do tons of volume? I'm not going to ask you that volume question because you're <laughs> probably not going to tell me anyway. Uh, but it, you could sell as many as 150000 a year, I suppose. Tell us a bit about marketing efforts and how you can let people know about it. Yeah, absolutely. We have uh, a really robust plan in place. So we'll launch the product in October, and then starting in January, our marketing campaign will kick off. It will be a, a full vehicle launch effort. We'll have broadcast TV spots. We'll have full digital and social media spots on this car. Um, targeting young, youthful buyers below 30 years old will be kind of the, the folks that you see in all those spots, as well as highly multicultural. So a lot of different multicultural uh, focus on this product. We're going to be advertising on the TikTok platform for the first time with Corolla Cross. The target buyer for this vehicle is... Uh, really excited about TikTok, so we're going to be there to. So many talk people are excited about TikTok, aren't they? <laughs> In my household, for sure. <laughs> Production is going to start soon at least as we speak here, even by this time this airs, it might be in, <laughs> in production already. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, certainly supply chain has been an issue uh, for production of all kinds of cars, and uh, certainly inventory has been an issue. Uh, has it affected uh, Corolla Cross at all? For Corolla Cross, because we're a, a brand new production facility and a brand new model, the ramp up was planned to be slow from the get-go. And fortunately, the chip shortages due to COVID haven't affected that plan very much for Corolla Cross. It's certainly affected some of our other programs. But at this point, we're on track with what our plan was going to be. Fingers crossed that, you know, we, we stay on that. But production kicks off at the end of September, and we'll be in dealers in October. Yeah, vehicles in dealers in October. You can check them out. You can check them out before the national advertising breaks and be the first on your block to uh, see and drive and maybe buy the new uh, Toyota Corolla Cross. So uh, uh, anything you'd like to add before we sign off here, Ben? Just really excited to be launching this product and changing the face of what Corolla means to our buyers. We look forward to a lot of repeat customers coming in and learning about this product and having a really strong vehicle for customers to consider in the entry SUV space. Yeah, it is a, a, a great vehicle value, I think. Uh, there are a lot of entries in this in this segment, but this is a terrific one. And I'm glad it's in the marketplace. So Ben Haushalter, thanks so much for being with us. We do appreciate it. Thank you, Jack. Stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Christine Techney-Red with you. As we finish up the show, it is listener question time. We love to take your listener questions. Uh, we are happy to answer them, and we're here to help. That's what we're here for. Um, if you'd like to submit a listener question, submit it to editor at drivingtoday.com. That's editor at drivingtoday.com. We'll try to answer it on an upcoming show. And Chris, I think you have a question for me. Do you not? I, I do. This one is from Don in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, he says that he has a car. The lease is about to run out on his car, and he's looking around for options to replace it. There doesn't seem like there's much uh, in the way of options uh, for new cars now going on with the chip shortage and everything. Uh, he wants to know what our advice is. What should he do now that he's at the end of his lease? 
Well, I think there's a couple of things you could do. And probably the answer to the question that I would suggest is sitting in his driveway. It's the current car that he is leasing. And there are two things he can do about that. Uh, one is, and presumably, you know, Don likes the car. If he doesn't, that's a whole different story. Uh, but if he's reasonably satisfied with the car, he can certainly stick with it by continuing to lease it. He can probably set that up with the leasing company uh, that he can continue to lease that car. Maybe he does a, a shorter term lease on, on that vehicle. Or uh, he could purchase the car. And the good news there is he can purchase it for the residual price, uh, the residual value that's listed in his lease contract. And the way the market has been going, if he's got a three-year lease that probably uh, ensued before we had this crazy used car thing, he's going to make some money or ex exactly uh, do pretty well by buying a car at the residual value. He might be able to sell the car, either turn around immediately and sell it or sell it in, say, six, eight months from now when things ease up a little bit uh, for maybe as much money as uh, he's paying for it right now. Uh, what's your take on that, Chris? I totally agree. I think that is is sound advice, uh, hopefully sound advice that we're giving out here on the radio. But uh, I agree. If you can wait or hold on to the car you have, you're going to do much better than you uh, would by trying to hit the market right now, at least, and try to buy something else new or used. Uh, so definitely great advice from Jack on that one. Very, very tough times right now to buy a car, either new or used. That doesn't mean you can't do it or you shouldn't do it. I would certainly look out there. And there are still deals out there, too. But uh, I would think that uh, if you have a leased vehicle that uh, you like pretty much, I'd either continue to lease it or uh, make a deal to buy it and uh, go on about, about my business for the next several months and then look to buy a car maybe a little bit later. And that is our show for this week. Uh, Chris, you always do a terrific job. Thanks for joining me. Always great to speak with you. And join us again next week right here for another edition of America on the Road.